0: Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, John Kay. Me, Tony Honigberg. Me, Clive Roslin. Coming up this week, we'll hear from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence. He's the senior rabbi at Finchley United Synagogue at Kinloss. He'll be telling us about his heritage trip to Weisbaden in Germany. Also coming up, Phil Dave will be reporting from the Jewish Museum as we find out about Asterix in Britain. He'll be talking to Morgan Wadsworth Boyle, the assistant curator. And Jodice Joseph will be joining us. Jodice was diagnosed with bipolar and he's very much been involved with Norwood. He'll be telling us more about that later on. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week. Here's Vivian
1: Krieger. And we begin with the Foreign Secretary describing the United States' decision to withdraw from the UN Human Rights Council as regrettable. The US cited one of its main reasons was what it called the perceived chronic bias against Israel. Boris Johnson conceded that the Council needed reforming, but stressed that Britain's support for it remained steadfast. A row is brewing over Prince William's upcoming official visit to Israel. In his itinerary, Jerusalem is listed as being in the occupied Palestinian territories. An Israeli cabinet minister has called on the royals to make a correction. Zev Elkin, who's announced he will run for mayor of Jerusalem in this October's elections, said it was regrettable that Britain had chosen to politicise the royal visit. Prince William is due to go to Jordan before travelling on to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, where, the itinerary states, he'll be briefed on the history of Jerusalem. Here, the Jewish volunteer response group Shomrim came to the assistance of shopkeepers and customers in northwest London this week after a building partially collapsed. It happened on a parade of shops in Brent Street in Hendon, where the fire brigade, London ambulance and police attended, but no injuries were reported as a result of the incident. In Israel, about 25 Hamas targets in Gaza were struck by military planes. It came after Palestinian terrorists fired dozens of rockets and mortars at communities in southern Israel. Some were intercepted by the Iron Dome defence system, but others did explode inside Israel, causing damage to property. It was reportedly the biggest flare-up between the sides in weeks, although no casualties were reported. And finally, the low-cost airline Wizz Air has announced it's to launch a direct flight between London and Elat, Israel's southernmost city. It will operate out of Luton Airport starting in late October. It's the first direct flight to Elat since Monarch folded last year. Thank you, Viv. First
0: on the Jewish Views this week, we're joined by Stephen Arash duke He's the foreign editor of the Jewish News as we look at the paper itself this week. And the front page story relates... To the Jewish population, because for many decades it's always been thought that actually the Jewish community of Britain is declining, but your main story says that's actually not the case. You're quite
2: right, John. It has been declining since uh, 1979. And the news this week is uh, new figures from uh, JPR, which is the Institute of Jewish Policy Research, has shown that, in, in their words, the Jewish community has turned a corner. And amazingly, it's gone from uh, declining to now outpacing the national population by three times.
0: And is that because of the ultra-Orthodox Haredi community having big families? In part,
2: yes, but the non-Haredi community is also growing. So, they broke it down. The strictly Orthodox are growing by about thirty-five percent, and the non-strictly Orthodox community is still also growing by almost twenty percent.
0: Is that simply people having more than your two children?
2: Perhaps? I assume so. They they referred to it as uh, Jewish fertility. It's a fantastic story, and it really helps planners in terms of school places and such. But it's 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 been described this week as an extraordinary shift to go from a declining population. The Jewish community was 2% behind the national average, and it's now the national average is around 8 or 9%, and the Jewish community is around 25%. So it's now three times as much. It's
0: extraordinary turnaround. Back in the 1950s, it was considered that we had an official figure of about half a million in this. Country more recent times have been talking about 300,000. So, what are they actually saying is the figure now, or is likely to be the figure, say, in 10 20 years' time?
2: It's just under 300,000 at the moment. But if these population growth figures keep going, then it, we could hit the 300 mark. Interestingly, the researchers for the JPR work went for the statistics from male circumcisions and i was interested to know that that's for a long period been how they've derived these stats
0: now let's turn our attention to some of the news over the past week internationally and the united states has pulled out of the un human rights council uh, partly citing the fact that it is biased against israel but not exclusively what's been the feeling about that generally
2: You're quite right. The US cited chronic bias against Israel, and it has been doing for a long time. This is no surprise that the US has pulled out. The Trump administration made this a a point in its campaign and has followed through. There's certainly no love lost with the Human Rights Council with regards to Israel and Jewish communities in part because it has had a permanent agenda item to always discuss Israel at its meetings ever since 2007. In the Jewish community, the reaction was mainly to the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson's statement. He said that the UK does have an issue with the Human Rights Council's disproportionate focus on Israel, but that it wouldn't be pulling out. And groups like the Jewish Leadership Council and the Board of Deputies we quick to condemn the Human Rights Council this week, but they didn't go so far as to say that the UK should pull out. And in fact, Jewish human rights groups like J.Core and Rene Hassan specifically said this week that we hope that the UK doesn't pull out because the way to reform things is from the inside, not from the outside.
0: I know Nikki Haley, the America's ambassador to the United Nations, has been very critical of the UN Human Rights Council. And that is partly because countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, who, you know, do not consider to be very good on human rights, has just joined. And there are others who, in fact, have chaired that council where human rights, you know, is hardly prevalent in, in those countries. But is it just America then really that is critical of the work that it does?
2: Well, Israel also is hugely critical, and you're quite right, the Democratic Republic of Congo has just joined, just been admitted, and there's tens of thousands dying there. Another country cited by Nikki Haley was Venezuela. Dozens of opposition activists killed and not a word of condemnation. So there does seem to be a disproportionate focus on Israel. I can completely understand the Jewish community's worries that it's, it's a body obsessed with Israel. But, uh, as I said, the the main feeling within the community that we took from this week was that it's better to stay in bodies like this and reform them from the inside.
0: Now, let's look at some other aspects of the paper. You've got two children on the front page. What are they doing there?
2: This is a fantastic news story. We met these two earlier this year at the uh, Jewish News Night of Heroes Award in London. One is a 10-year-old boy, Rio Wolfe. Uh, nicknamed Baby Blade Runner. He's an amputee. He had his leg taken off at the knee and is a huge sports fan. The other is his joint winner, Lucy Alaloof, 11 years old, and they met each other at the Night of Heroes. And Rio was so inspired by Lucy, who's been raising money for Camp Simca, that he decided this year he was going to go on the Maccabi Community Run this Sunday, run the 1K with his dad, Trevor, and raise money for Lucy's charity.
0: As well as those children, you've also got an 18-month-old feature this week.
2: That's quite right. Theo Sackle, aged 18 months, is going to be running, I don't know, for the full 1K, but certainly some of it. <laughs> and his mother and father, Bianca and Gary, want to raise money for Genetics, a Jewish genetics charity. Katrina Sarig, the director there, ran into them in 2015, and Bianca was pregnant, and Katrina pestered them to get screened for some of the Jewish genetic diseases. They didn't think they needed to, but they went along with it anyway. Turns out that they're both carriers of Canavan disease, which can drastically shorten a child's life. It develops in infancy, and there's a one in four chance if both parents are carriers that the child will be born with Canavan. And sure enough, they got tested for the baby, and the baby was positive. So they had to terminate, and that was August 2015. They tried again, and the same thing happened again. like One in four chance, and their baby was carrying a Canavan. So they had to terminate again. That was December 2015, I think. And they thought, we'll give it one last shot, and if not, IVF, because there's only so many times you can go through that. And third time, lucky, Theo was born, touchwood, healthy, and they want to say thank you to the charity. They said... Not a day goes by that we don't thank them for it, not only because our baby would have died, but because our baby would have suffered in the meantime.
0: Interesting story. Thank you very much, indeed. Stephen Ares Duke, Foreign Editor of The Jewish News. Many thanks, indeed, for looking through the paper this week.
3: You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And in the studio with us is Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence, Senior Rabbi at Kinloss United Synagogue. And Jeremy has just come back from a heritage trip to find out more about his European ancestors. It was Wiesbaden in Germany. Wiesbaden in Germany, that's right. Wiesbaden in Germany. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got there, what encouraged you to do this, and, and what you found?
4: Together with my mother and my brother, we have been looking into my mother's grandparents. Uh, she never knew them. Her parents came to Germany from Germany to London in the 1930s, and her grandparents, all of them, were lost in the Shoah. When I was doing a school project as a young fellow, I was asked to write about my hero, and I started interviewing my opa, my mother's father. And it was really during that interview that he began to open up and share some stories about his own parents that had never really been properly shared with my mother in her childhood. And during his life, but most particularly after his life, we started doing some research into both her grandfather on her father's side, who was a composer of light operetta and music in Germany, and also a little bit into her mother, who was a furrier, who had a shop in the Kurfürstendamm, which was destroyed in the Kristallnacht. And unfortunately, both her, her grandparents had become, my opa's parents had become divorced, and so their stories took slightly different directions. And really, with the arrival of the internet and the ability to source things and people uploading archives, it's been possible to trace a fair amount of information. And my opa himself was a composer, tried to get music published and had a couple of attempts at getting into the Eurovision Song Contest. He was not good enough even to get into the Eurovision Song (laughs) Contest. And, you know, we can say what we like about the people who do get in. But some of his music was very beautiful and he used to tell the stories about his own father composing with a parrot on his shoulder. And he used to tell stories about how as a kid he would rule the lines on the music paper for his father. And so we started looking into some of his father's music, and we knew that his father had been a composer of operetta, and we knew that his father had composed some dance, and we knew that his father had spent some time associated with Hollywood, and written film scores for for them there. And so we started to look into all the different details of these, and the trip to Wiesbaden came out of some of the research that we had done. So his parents had owned a cigarette factory in Wiesbaden. It was a uh, popular thing for Jews to do, and mm. they had some posters up, and they're available for collectors online. For you know, these were the these were the cigarettes that were going to win the First World War for the Germans. Um, it was one of the first factories to actually put out footballers cigarette cards and uh, so we did some research into that and my great grandfather started in their business but his love was music and he started composing and online I'd managed to source one of the operettas that he'd written which was the Lustiger Kakadu the joyous parrot and I did this while I was still serving in Australia and so through connections with Wiesbaden which was where he was born my my mother then got in touch with the library there and the archives there and they have just started over the last year since my mother was in touch with them a program where a couple of holocaust victims are commemorated in the town hall on the first tuesday of every month and they arranged for a commemoration just a couple of weeks ago in the town hall, where not only did they read out some of the biography of my great-grandfather Heinz, but also his parents, Marsha and Chaya, who had been the cigarette factory. Mm-hmm. And because this was in the local paper, there's somebody who had lived in there, who was living in the block, which was once the cigarette factory came along as well. It's in the town hall. They had arranged for a musician and for a singer to present some of the tangos and some of the lovely music that my great-grandfather had written.
3: How Out of interest, would we know any of the music? Is there anything that, that would have been that popular no. that we would know about?
4: No. So, 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 so the, only thing, the only thing that is available, and in the evening they put on the German version of the film Geheimnis des Blauenzimmer, The Secret of the Blue Room, which was written in Germany in 1932 and it was a, a horror film of its genre, mm-hmm. a cult horror film. That's available in English because it was remade in Hollywood in 1933 as The Secret of the Blue Room. And my great grandfather's music is the music
3: on the, English of, on
4: the English version as well. And given the Cadence of, of, of the way it's played, which is very, very like the way my oppa used to play the music. And We believe, there's no way of verifying this, we believe that it was probably him at the piano playing that music. So if you look up The Secret of the Blue Room on YouTube, and it's available there, it is now not the kind of film that anybody other than a cult movie viewer from that era would right. watch, but there is that music. But it sounds like, it sounds like sort of I mean, the, 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 the stripy bathing suit music of the, of uh, the 1910s 30s. and no, 20s on the beach and the I, tango mu- music of hmm. that era. It's very, very beautiful, and it was amazing to see it put on.
0: We know you go into a newsagent and you buy football cards, and here we are at the time of the World Cup. Uh, presumably because the, I think the company um, that your ancestors were involved in actually provided football cards within the cigarette packets. That's pa- right. Perhaps he was a pioneer of no, So
4: they were one of the first companies that was doing this in the very early 20th century.
5: My maternal grandfather, who died when my mother was 15, so I never knew him, had a mother living in Wiesbaden, although he'd been born in America. But his mother, my great-grandmother, I suppose, lived in Wiesbaden. And I went to Wiesbaden to see his grave, which was fascinating, because Hitler had said that Jewish cemeteries should remain the way they were, because he'd managed, these are all dead Jews. And I just wondered, I mean, it's a purely simple question, any of your family would we'll be, we'll be lying there.
4: So we, I, I visited the graves of my, great-gra- my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, yeah. Marsha and Chaya, who buried a couple of rows apart. I'd just like to say there are a couple of the things. You mentioned the cemetery which really stood out. There is a very beautiful monument to the Jews who died in the First World War and gave their lives for their country there. And it's always chilling to realise that I had great-grandparents on both sides of that war fighting on both sides of that war. And the other, the other thing with the, you know, with the visit was listening to the music and listening to the commemoration. A number of people came back immediately afterwards and they said they were so sorry, so, so sorry about it all. What they were apologizing for was not the Shoah, because the people who were apologizing to me were born long after. They were apologizing very specifically for the failure in Europe today, for the young people to be able to take charge of what is happening and to diminish the tremendous surge of racism in the name of nationalism, which is taking place. And there are some very sensitive people who were very touched by the story of a great German composer who had died and were upset that the direction now is more of the same.
3: Do the cigarettes still exist? The name of the cigarettes still exists today?
4: No, Mena Cigarette no longer exists and is under, mm-hmm. and under and probably been absorbed into other things. But there were lots of private cigarette manufacturers in that period. And what we have got is not none of the football cards. But we've got some of the very beautiful posters mm-hmm. that were produced and not the equivalent of Marlboro Man exactly. Mm. But uh, <laughs> and no advertising on the station. But, 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 but that were part of the branding of Mena Cigarette in Indies Baden.
3: Okay. And finally, what's the next step with this story of yours? Are you going to publish it? So we're to looking to
4: publish I mean, the, the the other steps that we're looking into is my grandfather's own journey here, his internment, being sent to the Isle of Wight, and then Canada as an enemy alien and then coming back and fighting with the British. And his mother's story, which is a completely separate story, which has also been researched in Germany, but all of that's for another time.
3: And then that goes down the generations and we end up with you. And then with you.
4: up with me and, and my brother, who's... Yes equally involved
5: in Australia.
3: Jeremy, Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence, thank you very, very much for coming in and talking to
4: us. Absolute
5: pleasure. You're listening to The Jewish Views, in association with The Jewish News. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com slash Views. On Twitter, we are at UK, or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk.
0: Now, do you remember Asterix the Gaul? Well, apparently, there's an Asterix in Britain exhibition, and it's actually taking place at the
6: Jewish Museum. Phil Dave has been finding out more. That's right. You find me in the Jewish Museum in Camden. And I'm surrounded by what I can only describe as a very garish display because we're here to learn a little more about Asterix, the cartoon character that most people probably would recognize. Some might not necessarily know his name, but you might know even less about the Jewish connection. I'm joined by Morgan Wadsworth-Boyle, who is the assistant curator for the Jewish Museum. And she's hopefully going to talk us through a little bit about this rather splendid looking exhibition. Morgan, welcome to The Jewish Views. First of all, just in case there's any doubt in anyone's mind, what is the Jewish connection with Asterix?
7: So the creator of Asterix, and we have to say many other comics and films, René Goscinny, was a Jewish man. His heritage is Eastern European Jewish, but he was actually born in France.
6: Okay, and then, of course, this exhibition here is celebrating the life and works of. But he's best known for actually writing the comics as opposed to drawing it. So the illustrations themselves were done by someone separate, weren't they?
7: Yes, we have sort of four collaborations in the exhibition. He wrote all the scripts for those works, but he worked with illustrators very closely on those. He did many others, but those are the most famous.
6: Okay, and tell us a little bit about the actual exhibition itself, the idea behind it, and what people can expect to see. I mean, for starters, the first thing you're greeted by as we take a little glance over the beginning of the exhibition is a rather splendid-looking typewriter that is apparently from, according to the plaque, I'm not going to guess, it's from the 1950s, apparently. It does look very smart and very in very good condition.
7: It's remarkable, actually. So this typewriter... Goscinny bought when he was in America. So this is an American keyboard. So he wrote all of these millions of French documents and scripts on an English-American-style QWERTY keyboard. And most remarkably, it doesn't have an exclamation mark, which is quite important when one is doing comics. So he had to create his own. He'd do an apostrophe backspace and put a full stop underneath it. And that's a really lovely detail you can see on some of the original typescripts that we have.
6: Excellent. Well, let's have a little wander around, shall we? Because instantly, apart from the typewriter, you're greeted by what one can only assume is maybe some family photos associated with Rene. So tell us a little bit about that.
7: So we have some amazing photos of Rene when he was six months old. He was born in Paris, as I noted, but his father worked for the Jewish colonization organization and got a job in Argentina. So his father left for Argentina and he, his mother and his brother followed a year or two later. So he actually spent his childhood in Buenos Aires in Argentina. He went to the French school there. They came back to France for holidays. But otherwise, his childhood was a sort of South American experience.
6: And this is all about obviously getting to know not just the work of René, but actually his life as well. But as we progress along, we do start to see smatterings of his, what I can only assume is early work. And there's quite an Evocative, I suppose, image here of what one can only assume is that supposed to be is that supposed to be a Nazi? Because you've also got Hitler as well over there. I see sketched. These are not the kind of things one would expect someone to start drawing.
7: It's really remarkable because he was growing up in Argentina. There was a sort of strange distance from so many of these things. You know, his family was back in France. Many of them were murdered in the Holocaust. But sort of during that time, he had this strange separation. So the some of the drawings that we have are he would did as a teenager, 17 and younger. So for this page, in, for example, it's really quite remarkable. There's a drawing of Mickey Mouse in the center of a page that also has Hirohito and you know Nazi officers and other things. And it was just sort of this casual drawing that you just did as a sort of matter of course. We also have one of Churchill and Stalin that he did when he was quite young as well.
6: So he did draw, even if he wasn't necessarily behind the drawing of Asterix and other comics, he actually was an illustrator himself to some degree.
7: Yeah, he started off being an illustrator and writer, but the illustration career never quite panned out. And at a certain point, he realized he could be much more successful as a writer because you could sort of produce scripts much more quickly than writing and drawing. Drawing a comic strip can take a week or more, but, you know, a script he could write in the matter of an hour, so it was also much more profitable when he was very, very, poor to focus on the thing that he could do quite well
6: now out the corner of my eye i can't help but spot some very attractive looking and very colorful cartoons harvey kurtzman will elder and larry siegel an american in paris is the title of this piece and this is just fantastic. You don't see drawings like this anymore, really, do you? It's all computerized now. And this is just all obviously done by hand and brilliantly so.
7: Yeah, this is actually a really remarkable piece. These were done sort of as fine art pieces. They were done with sort of gouache. And I think I read some even had enameled. And they would take such a long time to do. And this is also really special. So when Cosini he went to New York to live with an uncle, His father died when he was 17 quite suddenly, and he had to start supporting the family. And he ended up falling in with some other comic artists who you just named. And these became sort of the giants of American comics. Harvey Kurtzman is one of the founders of Mad Magazine, and they were all in the same little office together. And this work in American and Paris was actually done in Playboy magazine, so it was very well-funded, which is why it has such a high level of artisanship. Magazines change a bit since then. But what's very special in this is The characters are in Paris for a honeymoon. And there's a waiter in one of the panels that we're quite certain is an homage to Goscinny. It looks just like him.
6: And just to actually give some sense of layout to this particular exhibition, we are walking around as we speak a, a sort of winding, turning corridor, which at the top of it in a red line has a timeline of one can assume of René's life which really clearly illustrates year by year almost his, his time and his works. Was there any deliberate thinking behind the way this exhibition is laid out?
7: This exhibition actually came to us from the Museum of Jewish Art and History in Paris, where it was much, much larger than it is here. They have a much larger space. So we were sort of following that. And the logic with the timeline is, up to a certain point, it is sort of following the chronological trajectory of his life. And where we're about to head to is the start of his collaborations. And those, the timeline drops because... All of those things were going on at the same time interchangeably. So the timeline then sort of picks up again at the end to continue on with, you know, the story of what had been going on after this point in time.
6: As we make our way around, what can only be described as sort of a a level of intrigue, actually, because it's twists and turns. There's no straight path. Sometimes in the past, the exhibitions here have been quite open plan, so you can very clearly see what's ahead and what's around the corner. But this one somehow just fills you with this element of, oh, what's next?
7: Well, this has also been designed so um, these walls are paneled like a traditional comic strip sort of pattern. And, you know, we have some breaks in that. So you're kind of walking through the pages of his life until you get to the point where you're really looking at the comics that people would recognize and know.
6: Well, we are still actually at a point where I was going to say I'm not completely sure that I recognize much of the works that have featured. But we're just starting to see now Asterix creeping in. Tell us a little bit about how Asterix began. Because actually, looking at this now, we've got a wall here where Asterix is in a load of different languages.
7: Yeah, Asterix has been translated to over 150 languages. Some of those are just dialects. So we actually have Asterix, the Gaul, written in Scots. Not Gaelic, um, just a Scots dialect, and you'll see actually many others of those as well. Asterix got its start in 1959. It was published in Pilote, which was a weekly sort of magazine for young people, and it was done with Albert Uderzo, who is the artist. And we have some beautiful works of talking about sort of their collaboration and the humor that they sort of experienced in working together in the give and take. It's really neat. They, they worked on many other things together, Another that is was less successful here but successful elsewhere was Umpapa, which was about sort of a native american taking place in north america of course but with a very similar story actually to asterix of sort of small group holding out against an invading force and we have Umpapa page here on display as well tell us a
6: little bit about some of the interactive features that this exhibition has because i i spy in the corner Of the hall over there, some headphones. So, one would assume that along with the imagery comes some sort of audio as well. And I can also see some costumes, which one would hope is for the younger people who come to visit here, that they could possibly even dress up and look a little bit like Asterix if they want to.
7: We found the costumes are for everyone generally. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, because this is such sort of a playful thing, and Asterix we've found involves so many sort of generations in the experience, a lot of young people come to Asterix. You know, the parents have read it and handed it down to them. So we wanted everyone to sort of be able to play in the space. So we have a um, men here that you can try to hold up, like Obelix carries them around in the comics. We have some sort of wordplay activities because wordplay is such an integral part to Asterix. And Goscinny's mother's family had a printing press growing up. So, you know, we like to think when he was back in France on holidays, he was literally playing with words. And we want to give people the chance to do that here as well.
6: And one can only assume as well that it also gives people a chance to, I suppose, relive that element of nostalgia that everyone craves, really, don't they? Everyone loves to look back and not necessarily look forward. And Asterix has been a massive part of so many people's childhood. So here you can almost escape back to one's youth.
7: Yeah, and it's really fun. You know, we've seen lots of families coming in and really sort of, going for it and having fun in the space. We have a room that's sort of a shadow room. It has a flash and a photoluminescent wall, so it captures your outlines. And we've found everyone is going in there. And that was actually spurred on from one of his other collaborations with Morris and the Lucky Luke comic. And Lucky Luke was a cowboy who could outshoot or outdraw even his own shadow, which gave us the idea for that activity. And so these are now we're in the Lucky Luke section, you can see some of the works that he did with Morris
6: and this is just one of a number of collaborations that you mentioned of tell us a little bit about his collaborative work
7: yeah it's really remarkable we actually we have a few videos of him talking with his collaborators about sort of their process we have one of him with Uderzo who he worked on with Asterix and others and we have one of him with Morris and it's just remarkable watching these videos from the 70s and seeing obvious rapport between these people Lucky Luke actually existed and was drawn and written solely by Morris for quite some time, and then he invited Goscinny to come in and start writing the script. So we have the first typewritten scripts that Goscinny did for Lucky Luke for Rails on the Prairie was the first one that he worked on.
6: Do you think it's fair comment to say that René Goscinny is one of those individuals who has experienced success in the most fantastic degree but yet to some weird way still remains quite anonymous because I feel as if I don't know much about him at all. Even obviously having been to this exhibition, there's obviously nearly everything I've seen here is new to me, even though obviously I am aware with his work. Would you say that's fair comment that he is almost unknown, but yet famous at the same time?
7: I think it's different in different places. When he died in France, it said that it was as if the Eiffel Tower had fallen. So there, he's a household name. But here, I don't think he has that sort of level of recognition. And in watching the videos and interviews of him, you can see he's very sort of modest and self-effacing and self-deprecating. So I think part of his thing was sort of being much sort of more quiet and humble. But you can always see him with this little smirk on his face. So he had a remarkable sense of humor that came through in all of these things.
6: let's take a little stroll down the last stretch of the exhibition now I can see straight ahead a rather garish looking yellow wall staring me in the face with what I'm not going to insult by saying it looks like it could be mistaken for graffiti but there is a lot of drawing on it perhaps you could tell us the idea behind this
7: We always love having sort of the opportunity for people to interact creatively with our exhibitions. And this is our sort of creative feedback zone. So this is a wall that's been treated with a whiteboard material. And so people are invited to write and draw on the wall, either their own feedback or really astute comments. Like you can see, I love cupcakes. Who's not going to agree with that? We've got quite a few Father's Day messages up there right now. And so we're actually taking a photo of this every morning so we can sort of document it because there's been some really incredible artwork that's been put up there and some really amazing comments as well.
6: Just finally, tell us the details. If people want to come along and see this exhibition, how long is it on for and how do they get a hold of tickets and things like that, if necessary?
7: Um, The exhibition runs until the 30th of September. You can get tickets by going to the museum website or giving us a call, or you can just walk in the door and we're happy to welcome you.
6: Well, that's fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Morgan Wadsworth Boyle, Assistant Curator at the Jewish Museum. I have now well and truly been educated about a man who i have to confess i knew very little about so i would urge you that if you are a fan of the Asterix comics then why not come on down and just see exactly how much more to him there is than meets the eye phil dave at the jewish museum talking to morgan
0: wadsworth boyle the assistant curator If you'd like any more information on
3: any of the stories you've heard on this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website,
5: jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, in association with Jewish News. And we have with us now a young man called Jodice Joseph. And we're told you're someone who's benefited from the work that Norwood do. And you're going to tell us your story and why Norwood is so important. So... Tell us the beginning of the story, because apparently you didn't know you were Jewish till you were about 11.
8: Yes, that's right. So I'll give you a bit of a background on history on me and who I am. My grandfather from my mum's side is a rabbi. He's a rabbi from Stamford Hill. He's the head of Lubavitch School. And my other grandfather from my dad's side is a priest. So, <laughs> so there's, a bit, there's a lot of wisdom within my family. And my mum's actually one of 14. So my grandfather took the, the mitzvah to be fruitful and multiply very seriously. And growing up, my mum was quite rebellious in terms of like, she wanted to explore outside Judaism. And she felt like it was best to be, to be herself and to try other things. And she met my dad at the age of 20 and she left the community, the Stamford Hill community. Then she had me and my brother. And I grew up not knowing I was Jewish. I was in a Christian school called Galleons Mount. And I was in the Christmas play and I was actually acting as Jesus in the play, which is quite, he was Jewish anyway, so it kind of, it kind of worked. <laughs> <laughs> and I think over time I came home from these sort of plays and I came home from religious studies, learning about Christianity. I came home and I told my mum about Christianity. So I think she got to a point where was like, you know, they need, he needs to know about his Jewish heritage. So that's kind of the start. That's where it starts off. So she one day she said, I think this is what her thought process was. This is what she was telling me. Your whole life, you've been living a Christian life. You know, you're, you, you think you're Christian, but I think it's about time you saw your other side. It's about time you saw, you knew what it was like to be Jewish. So she gathers me and my siblings and she says, guys, you're all Jewish. <laughs> my head, I just, it was like a word just floating around in, in the atmosphere. It did not mean anything to me. I was like, what does that even mean? My mum ge- gave us a bris when we were younger, so we had, we had the mitzvah of, of bris and that was the only, thing, only connection I really had to Judaism, even though I didn't know it was my connection. So, sorry to
5: interrupt you, but in the middle of that time, until that time, you'd never met your mother's family?
8: No, not at all. I didn't even know they existed. All I knew that was existed was my siblings, my mum, and my father. I didn't really know I had, extend- I had another 13 uncles and aunties somewhere, or loads of little cousins. I was completely oblivious to that fact. So what happened was... She told us we were jewish and she said we're going to move to essex essex at the time was one of the fastest growing jewish communities and she said i'm going to we're going to move to essex so we, we turn up at gants hill beehive lane we get a house there and i walk into my first day i was in year six at the time so i was 11 and this is my first time my siblings were younger they were in young years and we went to ilford jewish primary school which is quite an orthodox jewish school in essex i walk in there on my first day well i was from quite a rough area so i had a bit of a limp I wasn't really into the whole culture of the Jewish Ashkenazi culture. I walk in there and literally what was going through my my mind was, where am I? Like, what's going on? There was these people with all these, these circular pieces of material that I happen to be wearing now on their heads with strings coming from, from down from their waist. I didn't know what a Jew looked like. I didn't have any idea. And this is the place I was walking into. And I, you know what? I think it did sub- subconsciously have an effect on me in terms of like, I didn't know what it was like to be Jewish. and I didn't feel kind of integrated in the community. And I think that had kind of an effect on my self-image.
5: So that was when you started becoming thinking and becoming Jewish.
8: Yes. How did you do that? I started to go to Haida lessons, one Jewish lesson a week, to kind of build myself up for my bar mitzvah, which was when I was 13. And I just went to all the Jewish study lessons in schools.
5: Now what I'm fascinated by, did your brothers and sisters also do become Jewish? Or were you the only one who decided to be jewish
8: so we were all holacically jewish because our mum's jewish yes but we didn't understand that we didn't understand anything about judaism we didn't know what it meant to be jewish so for us we were just kind of just passively going along with it because that's what our mum had decided where it didn't actually mean anything to me for my whole school life okay i had the jewish community my friends and maybe i went for to shul on a saturday she kind of got us to keep shabbat when we started she she kind of got us fully in and we, we didn't want to do it. We didn't want to not touch our phones for 25 hours. We didn't want to go to synagogue every Saturday. We wanted to be out with our friends. But my mum insisted that we go to synagogue every week. And that was her thing, that we go to synagogue every week.
0: You said you only discovered that you were Jewish at the age of 11. You had a mitzvah at the age of 13. Yes. So, therefore, does that mean you had to learn to read Hebrew within two years?
8: Yes. So I had a really good rabbi who taught me how to, to read Hebrew and i managed to do i didn't do the whole sedra but i managed to do a big chunk before blessings and the after blessings with a lot of help and with with the help of the people around me i was able to to do my permits to learn hebrew and now i just come back from yeshiva actually so and i want to be a rabbi (laughs) so even though i didn't know i was jewish until i was 11 i love judaism i absolutely love it and i'll tell anyone i advocate for judaism for my whole life because it gives me meaning and thank God, I've, I've I found, a, I found a good path in Judaism as well.
3: What did your father think about
8: this? I think my dad was quite upset because we left the Christian... It was quite ironic because she left her family to, not, to live a non-Jewish life. But then she left her non-Jewish life to live a Jewish life. So my father was... He felt quite betrayed at the beginning because he had worked there. He thought we just left him. But over time, do you know what they say? Time heals. And I think literally over time he started to realise that actually there's a better life over there in the Jewish community, that my, my my kids are doing very well and I'm happy for them. Why did Norwood come into all of this? Uh, later on in school, I was quite a naughty kid during school when I was growing up and in year nine, year ten, I had a like an epiphany. You know what, I want to be good. I want to start working hard. So I, I started to get good grades, I got good GCSEs and I changed from being this naughty kid to being this amazing kid with all of this background subconscious burden of of oh I'm, I'm Jewish now and when I got to sixth form I had a big crash in terms of like the, the stress from A-levels caused me to have a depressive episode which I didn't know was a depressive episode at the time and I wasn't attending school which wasn't like me I was a very confident person I wasn't attending school I started to have really not eat from for weeks not get out of bed and my friends were like, what's going on with you? One, there was one point when my friend said, Joe, come on, get out of this rut. And then before you know it, I was having a super buzzy. I came in, I wanted to change the world. I set up this project because that is what bipolar is. You have a, a depressive episode and you have a manic episode. And I didn't really know how to deal with this. But then I was soon diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I started, I, I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I was devastated. I thought this is an illness. I read online, it's not curable. I thought this is me. This is going to define me. And then this is where Norwood comes in. I met this psychotherapist in adolescence called Sue Cohen. And she, I used this term, this sentence before, but she was like an angel in my life. Honestly, like an angel, because she made me help me come to terms with my illness. She made me believe that the bipolar does not define me. I am not restricted by the parameters of what bipolar is. There's so many celebrities who have bipolar. There's so many people with bipolar who can live stable, long, fulfilling lives. And she would set tasks for me, like go and sit in your because I, I got really anxious. The part of the bipolar, I got really psychotic, and I got anxious. I didn't want to go into school. And she used to make me say, she used to say to me, go and sit in your sixth form. Go sit with your friends. Just sit there, even if you don't want to leave. Even if you want to leave, fight the anxiety. Sit with it. And thanks to her, I finished my A levels. I didn't do the best because of the situation, but I passed. I took a gap year. I worked in a primary school for a year. I ended up going to uni and I, I'm in my third year now I've started a motivational speaking this, uh, organization with 40 people in it and I can honestly say Norwood Norwood and Sue together are pretty much the reason for that they, they built the foundations for me to allow me to build on that and you're studying human geography human geography yes third what's year. the
5: difference between human geography and geography
8: i always get this question there's physical in in geography there's two aspects there's physical and there's human physical is more looking at land processes and earthquakes and and nature human geography is looking at demographics population geopolitics so humans to do basically more with human beings physicals to do more with basically the ground the the physical aspects nature in the world
3: and at what stage are your siblings now
8: so one's at college one's in primary school, and I feel like they're not as passionate about Judaism as me, but they still go to synagogue every week. They still have Jewish friends, and they still do the festivals. So they're keeping hold them to somewhat of it has. I will one hundred percent say that it has impacted their lives, but they're on a journey, you know. Like everyone's different, and I'm not expecting them to become rabbis as well <laughs> or reverends. But the fact that they have Jewish Judaism in their life, I see it like a I see it like a light basically if you look at a flame right if you light a flame in a dark room it completely dispels light and if you look at a flame itself it, it's going upwards it, it's, it, it's defying gravity and I think life my siblings and I think we've completely defied gravity by our life situation by, by, by being in a situation we haven't and, and taking that in our, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our stride and using that to empower us to move forward and that's thanks to, I just want to say a big thank you to Norwood I'm sorry I just can't I can't stress how amazing Norwood have been and Sue in, in making me the person I am today. Well, I
5: think they've made, and I think you've got a lot to do with it yourself, they've made an amazing
0: man. man. Thank you so Congratulations much.
5: Congratulations, and wish you all the very best. Thank you so much.
0: And now this week's Rabbinic Thought for the Week, which comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence, the senior rabbi at Finchley United Synagogue.
4: I was privileged to spend last Shabbat in the Vatican at the Rome Round Table of the Global Foundation. We were hosted by Bishop Marcello Sanchez Sorondo, who is the chancellor of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences in the Casino Pio IV, their stunning late 16th century headquarters in the Vatican gardens. The round table is a faith-enabled discussion on a variety of concerns, cooperative globalization, the new Silk Road, which is China's development and growth, climate change, building sustainable communities around mining, eradicating human trafficking and forced labour, including the trafficking of organs, and looking at models for better and best practice. The 60 participants were drawn from diverse backgrounds. They included Larry Summers, former U.S. Undersecretary for International Affairs and Senior Economist of the World Bank, Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia, Pascal Lamy, former Director of the World Trade Organization, and Dr. Le Bin Wu, Chair of the Chinese Academy for Science Holdings, which has the great acronym, CASH. Amongst those joining me in the faith component were Archbishop Dr. Thabo Makagoba, Anglican Primate of South Africa, Archbishop Sir Bernard Nataturi, the Archbishop of Canterbury's representative to the Vatican, Archbishop K. Goldsworthy, the Anglican Archbishop of Perth, and the Reverend Justin Lewis Anthony, Deputy Director of the Anglican Centre in Rome. Faith-enabled dialogue entails bringing religious teaching into the discussion of enterprise and building upon religious perspectives of spiritual worth, employers' and employees' rights and responsibilities, the environment and management of resources. This was not a forum for motherhood golden rule blandishments, but a look at the nitty-gritty of halacha and applied scripture. The Torah encourages enterprise and growth, but at the same time is firm on establishing social responsibility with a strict ethical code. In our session, I traced a path from Ben Zoma in Pirke Avot, who asks who is rich and answers one who is happy with his portion, through to our universal Jewish mission stated at the end of Aleinu, to repair or heal the world under the dominion of the Almighty. Happiness with our portion? Our portion is not just our assets, but our portfolio of responsibilities. Contentment in this light is not merely complacency, a reflection on accrued wealth, but also on appreciating the discharge of personal religious liabilities to one's family, staff, community and the world at large. Ultimately, our purpose is uplift with a global reach. When, for example, our mining companies exploit others or despoil their locale, diminish their resources and abandon them once they have nothing more to offer, that is not only a throwback to abuses of the colonial era, it is a religious wrong for which we are collectively and individually accountable. How, though, do we encourage our executives and CEOs to present fair trade options to their shareholders and encourage them to do what is right, even though it yields less immediate return? Addressing this, we heard from Steve Waygood, who chairs the Corporate Human Rights Benchmark, and from Maurice Ostro, son of a Shoah survivor, who spearheads fair share and entrepreneurial giving. Microfinance initiatives, such as those championed by Tzedek, are an excellent way to transform lives, build hope, empower individuals, and build up communities. Last Shabbat, as Korach vied with Moshe for the role of leader, Moshe retorted to the Levites, is it not enough for you to be distinguished with the privileges of serving Hashem in your worship and song? It was indeed an honor to spend that Shabbat with people who genuinely appreciated the privilege of using our resources and enterprise for the betterment of others, for a better world, as a divine imperative, for His
0: world and in His name. Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence for our Thought for the Week and our thanks to him for telling us about his trip to Germany as well. Also on the programme this week, you heard from the Jewish Museum, where Phil Dave was reporting from, telling us about that Asterix in Britain exhibition. He was talking to Morgan Wadsworth Boyle. Also, Jodice Joseph, who discovered he was Jewish at the age of 11 and he's talked about his support from Norwood. And our grateful thanks to producer Sue Greenberg and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, John Kay. Me, Tony Honigberg. Me, Clive Roslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Bye-bye.